All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, as, as Pastor Stephen uh, shared, it is, uh, it is good to be back um, in the building, especially today with how cold it is outside. So uh, good to, to worship with you this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Mark again, Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. And this morning's passage, uh, the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is uh, one of the most sobering passages, I think, as I, as I consider the, the totality of Scripture. I just think of this passage as one of the, the, the hardest passages to work through uh, because of, of what it's about. And yet, also at the same time, it's not one of the, just one of the most sobering. It's, it's also one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. This is a passage where we see the, the humanity of Jesus on full display, and we also, at the same time, see Jesus' resolve and his commitment to do exactly what he said he would do in Mark 10, 45, where he says that he came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is what we see in this passage, that Jesus resolves to be a ransom for many. But before we turn our attention to Mark 14, the Garden of Gethsemane, I want us to, to first pause and just start with a different garden. And a different son, and a different part of the Bible, the, the Garden of Eden. You see, the, the Bible starts with the Garden of Eden, the story of creation. In the beginning, there was nothing, and then God created everything. He spoke, and all of creation entered into existence. And this creation was good. It was, it was flawless. It was without sin. It was without pain. It was without death. And what's more, God had a special plan for humanity. He created men and women to rule over his creation alongside of them, and, and he named the first two Adam and Eve. And God loved his creation. God adored it, and he had a special relationship, not just with all of creation, but specifically with humanity, because he had created humanity in a way that was different than the way he had created every one or every other part of his creation. He created humanity in his image. And the relationship between God and humanity was unique, so unique to the point that the Bible even goes as far as saying that Adam was the son of God. Now that's not saying that Adam was in some way divine, he's still a, a creature, but, but at the same time he, he was special as a creature. He was chosen to, to be governor over God's creation. This is a, a title that he was given much in the same way that we refer to other believers as a child of God. It was a, a status of his relationship to God the Father. And God has this special relationship with humanity, has a special plan for them, that they would rule over creation alongside of them, that he would live with them forever, and they could have anything everything that they would ever want, and as more people are born, the same thing would be true for them. This wasn't just for Adam and Eve. It was for all of humanity. There was just one requirement, and that requirement was that they not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's love for humanity was evident anywhere and everywhere you look. You just look around, and you can see that God loves humanity, and God said, I want you, humanity, I want you to show that you love me by doing one thing. I want you to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to show me that you trust that I am good, that you trust my word, that you trust, that you believe that I am God and you are humanity. 
Of course, we all know the story of the Bible. Um, rather than listening to God, rather than trusting him, Adam and Eve instead chose to trust the words of not the creator, but a creature of the serpent. And the serpent begins to cast doubt onto the, the goodness of God, the goodness of his word, the trustworthiness of God. And rather than obedience to God, Adam and Eve, the son and daughter of God, instead chose to reject God's plan and go their own way. And at that moment, all the way back in the garden, creation broke. And it has been broken since that day. But immediately after creation was broken because of God's creatures rebelling against him, God declared that he had a plan to fix it. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God basically says, one day, one of your children, one of your sons is going to fix everything that has gone wrong. One day, there will be a son who is going to be faithful in a way that you were not faithful to me. And throughout the next thousands of years in the books of the Bible that follow, we encounter many people who have a special relationship with God, not unlike Adam. But as we encounter each and every one of them, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph's brothers, Moses, we soon realize that these aren't the son. This isn't the one that God talked about in Genesis chapter 3. They are not fully obedient to God and they will not rescue his creation. Centuries after Abraham and his sons, God delivers the nation of Israel out of slavery to Egypt. And according to the book of, Is uh, of Exodus, it actually says that God makes them his son. It refers to Israel, this corporate nation, as the son of God. But we quickly see that this isn't the son who will fix a broken creation with their obedience. And the same thing is true for David and Solomon and all of the kings that followed them throughout the Old Testament. The Bible, in fact, all of, of human history filled with countless examples of those who fail to be obedient to God. And then we come to the New Testament, specifically in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark introduces us to Jesus. And, and I love the way it's so powerful with this background in mind, how the Gospel of Mark opens it opens with the baptism of Jesus. And notice what is said at Jesus' baptism. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God himself declares that Jesus is his son. And the question, of course, is the question that we see throughout the Old Testament, the one that has echoed throughout all of creation since the crunch of the apple in the garden. Is this the son who will at long last fix a broken world by being fully obedient to God the Father? And directly after that pronouncement that Jesus is the beloved son, we get to this story where God drives Jesus out into the wilderness to test him. The first Adam Adam, from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, failed when he was tempted by Satan. And then we get to Mark chapter 1, and we see Jesus, this one that Romans calls the second Adam, is sent into the wilderness where he also is tempted by the serpent. But unlike the first Adam, who failed, Mark tells us that Jesus remained completely faithful and obedient to his father. 
What's of note is actually that Mark, unlike the other Gospels, when they tell us about the temptation of Jesus, never tells us that Jesus' temptation is over. It's only two verses at the beginning of Mark chapter 1. And it never tells us that Jesus' temptation is over. And it seems to suggest that Jesus' temptation throughout his entire life is to walk away from the plan of God. To no longer be obedient to God's plan to save humanity. A never-ending temptation facing Jesus. How does Jesus remain faithful to his Father? Mark, I think, addresses this. There's only three passages in Mark's gospel where he records Jesus praying. It's not to say that Jesus doesn't pray at other times, but Mark is very intentional when he records Jesus as praying. The first comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, the day after Jesus' first day of public ministry. Jesus announces himself in Capernaum. He teaches in such a way that the crowds are astonished and amazed. He does all of these healings, and people are trying to break his door down so that they can see what he has done. And it's this moment of amazement And Jesus becomes this overnight celebrity. And what does Jesus do? Well, he goes off and he prays. If Jesus wanted, Jesus could have just said the word and all of his enemies would have been slaughtered or they would have been enslaved. He would have been able to establish peace on earth. But that wasn't the plan. His father had a different plan. It might have been his right to do that as God's son. It might have been his birthright, but it would not fix a broken creation if he, in response to that temptation, gave in. And so we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus awakes early in the morning, he leaves the crowds behind, and he goes off into a desolate place, and he prays. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. A couple chapters later, Mark chapter 6, we encounter a similar situation. Jesus, after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, the crowds have been chasing Jesus everywhere he goes. And after this moment, John's gospel actually tells us that the crowds surrounded Jesus with the intention of making him king. They wanted to force Jesus to be their king. And how does Jesus respond? Well, we see that in Mark chapter 6. Immediately, He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When Jesus is faced with a shortcut to glory, Jesus retreats and he prays. And by doing so, he remains completely obedient to his father. A couple chapters later, At long last, Jesus is ready to reveal himself to his disciples. He asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter responds correctly, you are the Christ. Or in other words, you are the long-awaited king. You're the one who is going to fix God's world. You're going to bring God's forever kingdom. And Peter is right, but he has no idea what exactly that means. And so Jesus goes ahead and explains it. That for him to be the Messiah, for him to be the Christ, for him to be the king that everyone has waited for doesn't mean that he is going to slaughter all of his enemies, but instead that he is going to be slaughtered on a cross. And in Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus reminds his disciples over and over and over again of what is coming when they finally get to Jerusalem. And it culminates with this beautiful passage, this beautiful saying from Jesus. I, I alluded to it earlier. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And now at long last, we come to the breaking point. Jesus is hours away 
from the cross. For 30-some years, he has been faithful to his Father in every single moment. Obedient at every single time of his life. And then we get to this moment, the, the final temptation of Jesus. And the question that we have to ask is, will Jesus finish faithful? These 10 verses are really just three scenes, and they ask us two questions. Is Jesus, or will Jesus be the obedient son? And will the disciples be faithful followers? Will Jesus be the obedient son? Will the disciples be faithful followers? Let's go ahead and look at these two questions. I want to read the passage for us first, starting in verse 32. Mark 14. Please follow along as I read aloud. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took, him, took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As I mentioned, this text asks two questions. Let's consider the first one. Will Jesus be the obedient son? Recall that up to this point, Jesus and his disciples, they have just got done celebrating the Passover. After the Passover, Jesus and his disciples, they head out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. There's this hill that is just outside of Jerusalem. And when they arrive at the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his disciples head to this garden. This garden is called Gethsemane, which means olive press. Luke tells us that Jesus came here often with his disciples to pray, so it would have been a familiar place for all of them. And entering into the garden, Jesus tells eight of them, and he says to these eight, I want you to, to stay and wait while I pray. And then he brings three more, the other three, with him into the garden, and he tells them, I want you to wait and watch while I pray. And these three, Peter, James, and John, are his closest friends. If anyone would obey that command... If anyone would have the resolve to do what Jesus has asked, it would be these three. And notice the, the language of distress that we see here from Jesus, or of Jesus, and, and the distress he finds himself in. Verse 33 tells us that Jesus is greatly distressed. To this point in the Gospel of Mark, as we have looked at Jesus, he is completely unflappable. Any and every situation, nothing shakes him. We can think of his demeanor in the midst of a storm that is about to kill everyone on a boat in Mark chapter 4 or in the face of evil incarnate itself facing this demon-possessed man by a legion of demons in Mark chapter 5. Now, however, Jesus finds himself at a spot facing something where he is completely and greatly distressed. 
Verse 33 also tells us that Jesus was troubled. This is a word that means something like being overcome with horror. I remember when um, our youngest, uh, Ezra, we were expecting him, we received some troubling news at uh, his first ultrasound. There were some troubling spots on the scan, and uh, the, the, there was just a lot of uncertainty about what was wrong with him, if anything was wrong with him. And it led to a, a number of trips to Sioux Falls to, to make sure that he was okay and healthy. And I remember when I first heard that news and the, the possible diagnosis that we received, the uncertainty surrounding my son's health, it just left me, me sick to my stomach. I was just overcome with, with nausea. To, to borrow language from uh, another author, it was like, a black cloud trying to choke me. I was at this point where I was just overcome with horror and uh, just the uncertainty of, of what, what if for my son. And he ended up being completely healthy and, and fine. And, and I, at the same time, I don't think I'll ever forget that wave of horror that I experienced and living in that uncertainty. Many of you have probably felt something similar about a diagnosis or about some news that you received on the phone. This wave of horror that, that feels like it is going to choke you because of how awful it is. And that is what Jesus is experiencing on an exponential scale, leading him to say to his closest friends, I am so sorrowful, I am so filled with sorrow that I am on the verge of death. And the question is why? Why is it that Jesus is so overcome with sorrow? Every moment in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has shown that he is completely in control. Calm, cool, collected. Jesus knows that his death is coming. He's told his disciples multiple times that his death is coming. Why this sudden change? What is facing Jesus that causes this change? The answer is found in Jesus' request to his father in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What does Jesus mean when he speaks of this cup? Well, as is so often the case in the New Testament, if we have a question, we go back to the Old Testament and discover what the Old Testament has to say about it. Throughout the Old Testament, this, this image of the cup is used to refer to God's coming wrath. Judgment poured out upon sinful humanity. Consider God's words to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So when Jesus says, remove this cup from me, we catch a glimpse of the horror that is facing Jesus when he will head to the cross. That's moment that is going to make Jesus so sorrowful, so filled with, with this concern that he is overcome with horror. And it's not death. It's not physical pain. It's, it's not torture. It's the prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath down to its dregs so that anyone who would be found in him would never have to do it. Here, in Gethsemane, hours before his arrest and the avalanche of events that will lead to him ending up hanging on a cross, Jesus faces his greatest test. 
Jesus knows his father's plan. He knows what it will cost him. The question is, will he remain obedient to his father? And that's the crux of the matter. Will Jesus remain obedient to his father's plan where everyone else has failed? Will the beloved son fail? Because if Jesus will not drink the cup of God's wrath, then each and every one of us will have to drink it. There will be no rescue for a broken creation. If Jesus turns his back on his Father's plan, there will be no ransom for many. We are given glorious insight into this battle that is waging in Jesus' soul, in this moment, hours, moments before his arrest, and he brings it to the Lord in prayer. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's Jesus. He is, he is overcome with anguish and he falls down on his face and he cries out to his father. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want to, to drink the cup of God's wrath. He doesn't want to be separated from his father. He doesn't want to walk the road to Calvary. Here we encounter the longings of the Son of God to avoid a judgment that he did not deserve. But even more than all of that, he wants to do his Father's will. And he will do his Father's will. The, ver- the voice in the first garden cried out, I will do what I want. And the voice in the second garden cried out, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see this moment and how significant it is? Back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what it means to follow him. He says if anyone would be his disciple, if anyone would follow him, they have to pick up their cross, deny themselves, and then they can follow him. In other words, they have to surrender everything to Jesus. That They have to deny themselves completely if they are going to follow him. That Jesus owns every single part of your life. That you must crucify yourself and all of your passions and your desires and then follow Jesus. And here in this moment, we see that Jesus does the exact same thing. Hours before Jesus is crucified on Calvary, Jesus crucifies himself in Gethsemane. He nails his will to the cross and says, not my will, but your will be done. This is the last temptation of Jesus. If he would be the ransom For the sins of the world. If he would save others, then he cannot save himself. And here we see Jesus' resolve to remain obedient to his Father. It builds over the course of 
these verses. Jesus prays this prayer, ending, not, not my will, but your will be done. He does it three times, emphasizing over and over his commitment to his Father. In fact, take a look sometime later today. Matthew chapter 26 is the parallel to this. And notice the difference between the language of Jesus' first prayer and the second prayer that Matthew records. And you can even just see that Jesus is stealing himself up to face the cross by prayer to his Father. He wishes that there was a different way, and yet at the exact same time, he will not even consider disobeying his Father. And then we get to the end of this passage, verse 42. We, it, it seems like Jesus has, has wrestled his desires into submission to his Father's will. He returns to his disciples. He declares that his betrayer is at hand, that the cross of Calvary awaits, and yet he's already faced the cross of Gethsemane. He's already laid his will down to follow his father's plan, and at long last, a world that has been broken by disobedience in a garden will finally be fixed because of obedience in a second garden. But what of the disciples? What of the disciples sprinkled throughout this text of Jesus' wrestlings to be faithful to his Father's will? We see the, the disciples. The text doesn't just ask, will Jesus be the obedient son? It also asks, will the disciples be faithful? Jesus has asked them to do something. Will they be faithful? Jesus has predicted that all of his disciples will fall away, and yet Peter refused to believe that he would ever do so. Just a few verses earlier, Peter said to Jesus, even though all will fall away, I will not. The other two, James, John, also there with Jesus back in Mark chapter 10, they said something just as arrogant, and they said to him, Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. What arrogance. Jesus' closest friends have said that they will be worthy of that friendship. And now's their chance to prove it. Now is a chance to prove their merit, to, to back up their inflated opinion of themselves. And what do we find instead? Jesus asked them to stay and, wa and watch, and he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Maybe they'll do better the second time. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Third time, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour, is at the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. This passage repeats three times to show the persistence and the resolve of Jesus to hold fast to his Father's will. There's no longer any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the faithful Son, the obedient one who is going to redeem all of humanity, the one that creation has been crying out for, longing for since the fall in the garden, and yet at the exact same time, it repeats three times the incredible failure of the disciples to support him as he is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And in just a few verses, we see the complete and utter abandonment of Jesus, and they all left him and fled. 
while the Son remains faithful, all else fall away. What can we learn from this text? I, I think it would be wrong for us to conclude that the takeaway from this text is that God put this passage in the Bible so that we can learn how Jesus dealt with temptation and we can do likewise. And of course that's true. I mean, Jesus, he's facing the same temptation that his disciples are. The temptation to fall away. And how does Jesus respond? He responds with prayer, right? And Jesus says to his disciples, essentially, he says, you know what? Do what I'm doing. Pray in order to fight temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. But this passage isn't primarily saying that we overcome temptation by doing what Jesus did. We instead see that this passage is saying we overcome temptation because of what Jesus did. And I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I see myself in the disciples. I see the disciples failing, struggling to, to keep awake, and I think of just the, the times where God has asked me to do something so small and how I have failed completely, utterly. It doesn't need to be repeated three times because of how miserable the failure was the first time. And when I see this passage and the anguish of Jesus as, as he is going through even just the prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath, a cup that I was supposed to drink. And I just begin to realize I have no idea how awful my sin is that Jesus knew what awaited him because he would drink the cup uh, that was meant for the sins of people like me and you. And, and I, when I face with my sin, I just say, God, God will just forgive me, it'll be okay. I have no idea what Jesus went through. Count me among the billions of people who have failed to remain faithful and obedient to the commands of God. Count me among the billions of people throughout history who have walked a life deserving of God's wrath. Count me among the billions of people throughout history history who have walked not in the father's footsteps but in the footsteps of my father Adam not saying yet not my will but your will but instead choosing my own way instead of the way of God and thank God that there is another garden that there is another Adam that there is another son who is finally faithful. See, that's really what this passage is teaching us. It's just simply saying, where we failed, Jesus prevailed. Where we failed, Jesus prevailed. Where you failed, where I failed, where we've each chosen to go our own way to ignore God and his plans for us, and we've chosen to turn our back on him, Jesus prevailed in the garden and on the cross, and because Jesus remained faithful, and because Jesus gave himself as a ransom for many, I do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Where we failed, Jesus prevailed. Do you see the horror of this garden because of your sin? 
the beauty of this garden because of the faithful son? That in spite of everything that it cost him, did so willingly because he loved his father. Isaiah 52 and 53 says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Where we have failed, Jesus prevailed. And because of that, we can prevail if we put our trust in him. Let's pray. Father, it is is so humbling to look at the garden. And we can't even begin to understand what it is that your son went through and what he went through for us. So Lord, help us as we consider this passage, yes, to avoid temptation, yes, to increasingly be more faithful with our lives and what you are calling us to, but even more so that we would just gaze at the sun. That we would adore him evermore in increasing measure, that we would worship him more fully because of what he has done for us. That we would delight in the call of Mark chapter 8 to pick up our cross and follow him because he first picked up his cross so that we could follow him. Thank you, God, for the glorious truth of Scripture. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.